England's thatched villages, white cliffs, and tea and crumpets. That's what people think of when they imagine Great Britain. But you know, there's much more. At the far corners of Britain, curious travelers can find pockets of a vibrant Celtic heritage. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Wales and Scotland are two Celtic countries, and each express their rich cultural fabric in uniquely charming ways. Today, we'll find out how they differ from England and how they differ from each other. Scotswoman Anne Doig and Welshman Martin Delandovitz are joining us in a moment to take your calls and fill us in on the sights, culture, and other pleasures of each one's respective homeland. Anne and Martin will breathe new life into their cultural icons, those castles and slate roofs, bagpipes and men's choirs, whiskey and ale. They'll fill us in on the historic roots of the gentle rivalries that still make each of their cultures so unique. Get ready for a tempting taste of Scotland and Wales in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today we're going to Britain. We're going specifically to the Celtic corners of Britain, and that's uh, Wales and Scotland. And I'm joined by two guides, Anne Doig from Scotland and Martin Delandovitz from Wales. Thanks for joining us, you guys. Thank you for Thank having you. us. Now, you're both Celtic, and you're both British. Yep. And do you, do you see yourself as in Wales and Scotland as sort of Celtic brothers and sisters? Uh, how does that work? Well, yes, I think I think we do, especially when it comes to playing any kind of sports. If we're playing rugby, all the Celtic countries uh, sort of stay together. Like we say in Scotland, Scotland supports two teams, Scotland and whoever else is playing against England. Okay. <laughs> if you take uh, Britain, you have uh, Wales and uh, Scotland. But then, of course, if you take the United Kingdom to that, we had Northern Ireland. But in the British Isles, of course, it's all of Ireland mm-hmm. and Scotland and Wales. They're linguistically and ethnically different to the rest of Britain, i.e. England. <laughs> and then Great Britain would add Northern Ireland. No, no. no. Great Britain Not is still England. the island of Britain. Ah, the United, United Kingdom, Kingdom is Northern, Northern, Northern Ireland. Ireland. Yeah. And then Great Britain would be both of the islands together, all those people. Yeah. No, that's the British Isles. I'm well, sorry, but it's confusing, isn't <laughs> it's, it? It's so, very confusing. Britain, don't forget Cornwall, though. The Cornish, now, the Cornish people, people are Celtic, Celtic yeah. but they, the last Cornish speaker died, didn't they? Yeah. Does anybody speak Cornish? I think it's very much on the table being given CPR. <laughs> oh, they're trying to bring it back. Oh, absolutely. We've got Celtic people in France. That's true. The Bretons are the closest living language to Welsh. To Welsh. More close to Welsh than to Irish? Oh, much closer, much closer. They, ah. they are two branches of Celtic language. There's Q-Celtic and P-Celtic. And the Welsh are P-Celtic, as are the Bretons, whereas the Irish and the Scots are q And then Anne reminded me we've got Spain, Galicia, right? Galicia, yeah. And they speak Galego? Uh-huh, which is the Celtic language. And they've got pipes and lots of Celtic icons, too. And we're missing the Isle of Man. Of course. Is that Celtic? Q-Celtic. It's in between. Manx. It's one of the ironies, isn't it? Yeah, yeah Manx is uh, transportation of Irish via the Isle of Man. So that's the Celtic Crescent all yeah. around England. That's now, right. is my understanding correct that the Angles came over a long time again? Angles and Saxons yes. from Germany or something? Mm-hmm. From Friesland. Yeah. Is, it, is it fair to say that the Celtic people were living all over Britain, great, the British Isles, yes. and then the people from Europe came in, the bullies came in and took the best land and Pushed gave you guys it. the rocky stuff? Yeah. That's right. That's really what it is, isn't it? Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, if you look at the Angles, the Saxons, the Frisians, and the Jutes, England, with its deep soil, its better climate, is of use to them. One of the many things that Scotland and Wales have in common is very thin, acid soil and very small Hills. sheep. And that's about it. <laughs> Small sheep and acidic soil. <laughs> oh, my goodness. How are the Scots and the Welsh? You're both Celtic, but how do you differ if you were to generalize? Well, I would say, A, that we're half the size geographically and in terms of our numbers in population of Scotland. Scotland is a very big country. If you take a tape, and you know the listeners can do it at home, take an atlas of the British Isles, stretch it from the south coast to the southern border of Scotland, now do the same from the south of Scotland to the north, and you find there's very little difference in size. It's a big country in terms of Britain. So Hadrian's Wall cuts the island of Britain in half, essentially. In effect. I mean, the Scottish border is slightly to the north. And the, and the high culture is the area to the north of that line. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yes, absolutely. What are, the Scots, what are the Scottish people and most proud of in their culture? I think possibly their, their history, the fact that they were never really 
completely dominated by England. They won the Battle of Bannockburn and the, the Braveheart thing and that they voluntarily united with England in 1707 and have got that independence back. And I think they're very proud of their musical traditions and storytelling traditions and things that are very deep-seated in the culture. And literature, I think. And literature, sort of, yeah. I think you had to be good students to make it under London's rule. Yes. There's a real emphasis on reading. Well, education, that kind of came out of the Reformation because John Knox wanted everyone to read so they could read the Bible. So okay. the, the break from the Catholic Church. So yes, we always had a very good reputation for education. And it's very important to the people of Scotland. In fact, Queen Victoria said that our finest buildings were not necessarily our castles and palaces, but more likely to be banks and schools, money and education. Very important to the Scottish And you go people. to Edinburgh, you see that. Yeah. You see that. When Scottish people look at these popular movies, uh, what, Rob Roy and... Uh, Braveheart. Braveheart. <laughs> do, do you think those are good movies? Did they do well for Scotland? They did, yeah. I think Braveheart brought back a lot of national feeling. Not necessarily was a great thing because uh, the people in England didn't like Braveheart at all. Right. But yes, it did give people a feeling of, of national pride. Yeah. And now Scotland has its parliament again. Yeah. For the first time in what, 300, 300 years. years? Why did London let you have your parliament back? Well, I think uh, it was the Labour Party. They thought it was a, a stepping stone rather than having complete separation. It's a devolved parliament within the United Kingdom. People support the union. Some people support complete independence. Mm -hmm. So the idea was Tony Blair's idea. It was a referendum, and it would sort of prevent this movement for complete separation. So that's called devolution? It's called devolution. Does that mean giving power back to the regions? Yes. It's the opposite of federalism. So it's a pragmatic thing. London said, Mm -hmm. well, there's going to be some angry people wanting out-and-out independence. If we give them their parliament and we still control big-picture things, defense or whatever. That's right. That'll be sustainable. Security. And now you've got this glorious new parliament building. Yes. And has that quelled the secessionists? Not really, actually. There's serious secession talk in Scotland? Well, the the new Scottish parliament, uh, the last vote was in May, and by one seat the Scottish nationalists got in. By one seat. Wow. So it's a proportional type of representation they right. were voted on, so they have to govern with um, alliances with other parties. Right, coalition. Yeah. With the uh, establishment of the European Union, isn't it becoming a non-issue and London's going to kind of wake up and realize it doesn't really matter? Cause well, no, because because people are beginning to think that we do better independent within Europe. So right. you, there's no more British Empire. I mean, the Scots are very canny. When we united with England, the country became very prosperous. We had access to the British Empire. There's no empire any longer, so we don't need it. But if we're independent within Europe, Norway does well, Ireland's done brilliantly, the Celtic tiger economies, we might be better. Before the Scottish nationalist movement, I would say that business people thought it was a bad idea because the union was like a marriage and if the divorce would cost too much money. But a big thing has happened that there's quite a number of very important businessmen, including the last chairman of the Royal Bank of Scotland, which is now coming up to be the third largest bank in the world. It was the fifth. My goodness. But it's taken over the Netherlands Bank... Just recently. Now, Martin, when you hear this talk of Scottish pride and independence and they got their own parliament, what's going on at the same time with Wales? Wales has uh, an assembly which doesn't have the tax varying powers that the Scottish uh, government You're has. You're more integrated into England, aren't you, than Scotland? Yeah, I mean, that's historical. But, uh, you know, I did, I did put a slightly different slant on it to that which Anne said. Within the European Union, the regions have a much louder voice than ever they had before. And I think the devolution both to Scotland and to Wales, are both a product of that. Europe is a very interesting thing. There are two forces going on there that are hard to, how can you say, reconcile to one another. Power is being sucked to a centre of European administration and power, yet at the same time, power is being pushed out, devolved from the centre to the regions, so that the Basques, the Irish... Uh, the ethnic regions. Yeah. Yes. Rather than false political creations. If you want money from Brussels, don't tell them you're doing something for Britain. Tell them no, you're no, doing no. something for something. Cornish people or Well, or, well that's or right. Target people. one money. It's vulnerable economies. We've mm-hmm. got a lot of European money in the Highlands and Islands because it's Target one. Ah, and you call that vulnerable economies? Yeah. So Europe is a free trade zone of 400 million people giving money to the weak links exactly. to make it one it's big, uh, healthy free trade bridges, zone. New bridges, ferries. You get that in Scotland? Absolutely. And in Wales too? Yeah, it's an equalization part. Because every new freeway in Ireland, it comes with the European flag. Well, it's happening in Scotland. And it says, that really means brought to you by Germany and France, doesn't it? Well, no, because when you said that, I think I'm right in saying that Britain pays more than any than yeah, any other country. So United the big rich Kingdom. countries. Yeah, I guess Britain it's, would be it's, in that. It's an equalization pot. If you think about it on a world basis, it would pay ourselves to invest money in Mexico, in Africa. Is it a smart move for Europe I to be doing I think it's a tremendously this? smart move because once you 
raise the standing of living in those less well-off countries yeah. to the point where those people don't want to come to your country, want to stay at home, develop their own strong economy, education. Yeah. That's a great thing. Th- that diffuses the whole Irish problem, I think, because I think what motored the Irish problem was Northern Irish were afraid to go to a poor Republican yeah, Irish. Absolutely. They didn't care about the Catholicism so much. They yeah. just didn't want to go to a place where there's no roads and no schools. And now the Republic of Ireland is wealthier, you could argue, than, than Northern Ireland mm. because of this European money, and mm. the Northern Irish people are not so afraid. I, I don't think you have to argue it. It's a fact. And I think, if nothing else, the European Union exists as an equalization mechanism, it's, and it's going to be a great thing. It's sort of the same wisdom that uh, motored our uh, Marshall Plan after World absolutely, War II. Absolutely. And every, every American knows that was a good move. Uh, Scotland has its own pound, its own, its own currency. No. It's no. the same as the United Kingdom. We print our own notes, though. Because you got <laughs> your Scottish decorations on it. Yes. So you got we your don't own. have the Queen on our notes because there's three banks, the Royal Bank, the Bank You don't Scotland. have the Queen on your notes? No, we've got um, and she let you do Sir that? Walter Scott and we've got Robbie Burns and we've got our writers. And Robbie our Burns is like the ultimate in the Scottish yes, heart, we love isn't he? Him. Why do you love yeah. Robbie Burns so much? He was a man of the people because he, he wrote poetry that, that spoke from the heart to the people and everyone could understand him. He wrote in English and Even in today, Scots. the Scottish people love to quote Robbie. Do women quote Robbie Burns? Oh, yes. Give I mean, me a little Robbie Burns. A man's a man for all that. That's a very important one because it's not your status, it's your character. That a man's part. a man. A man's a man for all that. Best laid schemes of mice of men after gang a glee. That means if you plan something, it often goes crazy. <laughs> Can you do me a little, one of these little Scottish prayers, uh, like Robert Burns' prayers? Yes, the the Celtic blessing. That, uh, some hay meat and canna eat, and some hay meat that want it. But we hay meat and we can eat, and let the Lord be thanked. <laughs> Amen. All right. <laughs> Who was treated worst historically, uh, Wales or Scotland, by the English? Historically, what happens is that oh, 720 odd years ago, Edward I conquered the northwest Wales. Then, over a period of time, the English king came to rule all of Wales. And so then Henry VIII, God bless Henry VIII, Henry VIII decided that England is the same as Wales. Wales is the same as England. And therefore, since 1536, Wales and England have been the same. And, and that we were annexed to the crown years. of England. But that took a pretty strong move on Edward I's part. He built the greatest castles in Europe, I think, in northern Wales. Yeah, right? that's going back 700 years. The truth about Wales is, unlike Scotland, Scotland always had a king. And a uh, parliament. Kingdom of Scotland. Now, mm. Wales did not. It was several separate small states, each violently independent of the other. Princess. And therefore, mm. it could only be conquered piecemeal. And once that piecemeal conquest had happened, then it was down to Henry VIII to unify. The reason unified is so that he could carry out his dissolution of the monasteries and the reformation of the church in Wales as he did in England. Because that was the threat to his rule was the church and the monasteries then, that's right. more than the Welsh people at that point. That's right, because until that was as England, he had no right to dissolve those monasteries. But Scotland was different. I mean, you have the Battle of Culloden and the English rampaging over Scotland and demanding no more Scottish language, no clans, no kilts, no bagpipes. That you must remember, and I, I feel that when I go to the Battle of Culloden site. Oh, absolutely, yeah. We're learning about the Celtic corners of Britain, that's Wales and Scotland, today on Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK and radio at ricksteves.com, that's our email address. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by friends from Scotland and Wales, Martin Delandovitz and Anne Doig. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you. 
Thank you. Roseanne is on the line in Albert Lee, Minnesota. Hi, Roseanne. Hi, Rick. How are you? Good. Thanks for your call. Well, thank you. Um, I'm of Welsh descent. I uh, grew up in a small town in upstate New York, and we had no Welsh flag in our den, and my mother and father would say Nostalk at night. And I'm actually close to being full-blooded Welsh, which I find very rare to find anywhere. Like if I ask people their ethnicity, um, they just say they're a blend. And so within America, those within a generation or two, you know, we lose our ethnic heritage. And I'm just wondering how true is that of your two countries today because of Europe being so integrated? Is the ethnicity of the Welshmen and the Scotsmen of Europe um, as pure as it used to be? Well, you may have noticed my name is uh, De Lewandowicz. My father was half Polish and half French. He came over on a popular trip from France, Dunkirk in 1940. Lots of people came, <laughs> few went back. And uh, my mother is half English, half Welsh. I'm a true quadroon. I have four different races in me. And that's it. What defines your nationality to you? Is it where you were born? Is it the language you speak? Is it what your parents were? Um, I have two sofas from Ikea. I could change my nationality to Swedish if I wanted to. But Mm. I was born in Wales. I was raised in Wales. I speak Welsh more than I speak English when I'm at home. And uh, I simply feel Welsh. But nevertheless, and within that, I don't think anybody... I don't think there's a single reason for defining your nationality. Birth is an accident. Language is, is in effect an accident. It's your accent is an accident. It's the way you were born and raised. I don't, I don't think we should take too much pride from that. And I'm going to... I know something about Anne's surname. That, hmm, your surname, Anne Doy, where does that come from? <laughs> <laughs> well, for a long time, central Scotland, but if you go further back, apparently Germany. And I think for, for everybody in the UK, you go further, further back, there was Norse invasions, there was the Angles, the Saxons, the Celts. Celts came so from you're somewhere. you're kind of a melting pot, just like the United We're States. We're a mixter, maxter, really, right. if you go further back, yeah. We have Richard on the line in Austin, Texas. Hi, Richard. Oh, you're actually in London now, is that right? Uh, yeah, I'm actually in uh, Munich right now. I'm taking a little weekend trip. I'm staying in London for the semester, staying abroad. All right, and thanks for your call. What's what's your comment or question? Oh, I was just talking about uh, Wales. We were there recently, and we had an amazing time there. Everybody was very friendly. Great. We, we did have an issue where uh, our rental car agency did not pick us up, and it became a problem because they're all closed for the weekend, so we didn't know what we were going to do. And I went to Wales specifically to see the um, the border collies sheep herding out in the country. And so I didn't know how we were going to get out there. And we went to the bed and breakfast, and the lady heard that uh, we had this problem, and she said I could just take her car, <laughs> which was which was amazing and nice of her. And so I went that to go typical. get in it, and I realized it was a manual, and I had never driven a manual before. And so thinking that was the end of it, she said, oh, well, why don't you just give it a try? And so she sat down with me and gave me a driving lesson there with her car uh, on the crowded streets, driving around the castles and and learning how to drive. So it was an amazing experience. Now, where exactly was this? It was in Carnarvon. Carnarvon. You know, I live four miles from there. I live four miles from there. And you learned how to drive a manual on a borrowed car from your bed and breakfast in northern Wales. That's typical, isn't it? That's very... Actually, I wasn't doing doing very well with it, and uh, I think I was making her a little bit nervous. So finally she said, you know, why don't I just just take you out there? So she ended up driving me and my wife all the way out to Euphoria, which is about an hour drive away from Carnarvon. And uh, she took her daughter and hopped in the car, she said, do you want to go see some sheepdogs? And she said yes. And so they hopped in the car, and, and we all drove out there, and she drove us all the way back. That's a great story. Well, thank you so much for calling. Oh, you bet. It was, it was unbelievable. And the, the bed and breakfast, are just that's the best way to get a travel experience, I found. The awesome. people are so nice. Awesome. I agree. And especially in, in Wales and Scotland, and, and I find Ireland, too, the B&Bs are wonderful, and the people, they'll let you, I mean, you can't count on it, but, I mean, if, if you need a ride, you'll find a ride. Oh, thank you. Also, yeah. you know, the, Britain yeah. is really committed to uh, public transit, isn't it? I know in Scotland, yeah. for instance, yeah, if the buses don't go there, you're legally entitled to ride with the postman for the cost of a bus fare. Is that still true? Oh, out in the island, yeah, out in the, the rural areas, yeah. Yeah, that's still true. And, and we did that once, and it's a great way to make a friend and, and, uh, <laughs> and carry on. I'm talking with Martin Delandovitz and Ann Doig. We're, we're studying Scotland and Wales for our upcoming travels. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm interested in, in Wales and Scotland's relationship with Ireland. Do you have an empathy for the Irish struggle? Do you, are you a oh, haven yes. for, for 
even IRA people and so on? Or, or what's, what's the story there? There's been a lot of crisscrossing between Ireland and Scotland. So, yes, we've got, I think, more than Wales, perhaps, because our language came from Ireland originally. Mm-hmm. And Glasgow, there was 5,000 Irish came per week in the 1840s. So there's a lot of sympathy uh, with what's going on in Ireland. The troubles actually actually spilt over to some parts of Glasgow where people took sides. So is there actually a little bit of the troubles in Scotland? You won't Mm. find that in in Wales. I don't think anybody's talking about serious secession or any kind of terrorism, but you actually have some violence in Scotland against England. The Orange March parades in Glasgow celebrating the Battle of the Boyan. It's crazy. In Scotland? I didn't realize that. Because that's how close it is. So some of it came over. Because you got that... uh, Giant's Causeway, what is that? The, there was the Giant's a, Causeway, yes. There was a, a myth, <laughs> mythical uh, causeway across connecting. Yes, absolutely, yes. What about your relationship with France? I, I know that Scotland has uh, Catholicism in common. We have an old alliance with France that's never been repealed. They are, it was a military alliance against England, and they celebrated it about eight years ago, 600 years of the old alliance. 600 years you've been allied with France against <laughs> England, technically. Yeah, huh? and it's never been repealed. Um, because your greatest character, Mary Queen of Scots... She was Queen of France, yeah. And she, she had refuge in France, and she brought culture from France to Scotland. Exactly. And we have things like assiette that you don't have in English, meaning a big platter from the French. We've got French words from that time. There's fusion, yeah. fusion cuisine, isn't there? Yes, absolutely. The Scottish food is very much influenced by France, because when people ask they want Scottish cuisine, well, it's Scottish products, but they're usually in haute cuisine in Scotland. It's usually a French interpretation of it. Now, Scotland has had a lot of trouble over the years just because of the, of the Catholic issue, hasn't it? In Glasgow, I would say. I mean, not today, but, but Bonnie Prince Charlie was, oh, was yeah, all about Bonnie... Catholicism, wasn't it? Well... <laughs> He was Catholic, yes, and there was support in the Highlands. Uh, the, the Reformation wasn't as strong on the Highlands as it was in the, okay. the rest of the country. But, but wouldn't you say at the, the Battle of Culloden, you could as much put uh, lines across the, between the two sides. One is Highland, one is Lowland. One is Catholic, one is Reformed um, Presbyterian. Yeah, because the Scots no. f- fought, yeah, they were Reformed Presbyterians mm, who yeah. fought for the government, and the Highlanders ah, were so more... So the yeah. Presbyterians in Scotland were more likely to be um, yeah, well, like working with, with London. The government, yeah. oh yeah, because the Campbells were Presbyterians and bitter enemies of the Catholic House of Stuart, and they fought, they were Highland clan, but they fought for the government. They were Presbyterians. And it is, it is an irony, is it not, that while we celebrate Mary, Queen of Scots, and at the same time we celebrate John Knox, we can't celebrate the two together, can we? That's Absolutely right. You not. got Mary Queen of Scots, who was like an emblematic of Catholicism, yeah. and then John Knox, who's like Mr. Reformation. Absolutely. Acted directly against her, and this is the thing. Within the history of any country, there are these contradictions, and yet what happens today is we just throw them all into one bucket called history and say, oh, Mary Queen of Scots, wasn't she lovely, and John Knox, wasn't he nice? And they're at You odds. can't have the two. What's the state of the church today in, in Scotland? They say by 2025, there'll be nobody going to church. The church is just... So the churches are getting empty. Absolutely getting empty, yeah. Historically, there's a lot of uh, very interesting history. You go to the <coughs> island of Iona. Oh, yeah, where Christianity came for spread throughout Scotland. Absolutely. And I mean, in the 19th century, I mean, Edinburgh's got hundreds of churches. There were splits in the church. People took their religious very seriously. But in the 20th century, I think it was the two world wars. People are just, they're not interested in religion anymore. Mm. So yeah. it's increasingly it's becoming secular. Point. That's a good point. The death and disaster and destruction of two global wars. Dying for God and countries. Well, yeah, but you know, when you have half the population, half the male population of any town or village in Scotland or indeed Wales dying, you know, it tends to make you question Hmm. the the goodness. And then Lloyd George, land fit for heroes that never happened. Scotland gave more per capita than England did yeah. for the Any Queen. Any other country in Europe. What's with that? The Scottish were so heroic in fighting the English, and then something happened in the 19th century where the first people in line were these Scottish people with their kilts and bagpipes dying in droves for the Queen. Yeah, they expanded the British Empire because they were loyal. The Highland system was really a warrior system. That the, the clan chiefs were like... Um, Warlords, and the, the so they just Highlanders, like to fight. In other words, and you got a chance. The Highlanders war- were brave, loyal, fierce fighters. I mean, even into World War One, the Germans called them the women from hell because they wore the kilt. Is that right? Yeah, and the, and the Scots regiments saved Paris in World War One. Nobody knows about it. That's the kind of thing that we get a bit upset about when when Britain does something well, it's it's England, and when Scotland does something well, it's Britain, and then nobody hears about it. So. 
there's a lovely story that comes from Wales that it comes from the 14th century where the, uh, the, the king is interesting. He's holding an inquiry. By what right do you raise that money? By what right do you hold that land? And the Earl of Pembroke came in and everybody was producing their title deeds. The Earl of Pembroke walked in with a rusty sword, banged it on the table and said, it's by this right that I hold my land. And it's the same thing in Scotland, wasn't it, exactly? Uh, but these, these were feudal lords. Yes, they held right. land by power and their tenants were their army. Mm-hmm. And loyalty was a strong thing. They so, ate together and they fought together. It was a feudal system. Come the 19th century, when the feudal ruler was the, the queen... They yep. were loyal to the queen. Exactly. Loyal to the queen. Plus the fact that if you look, I mean, I, I started, started They wanted jobs with, too. Yeah, this is sure. it. They joined the army. Thin acid no. soil and small sheep. So what are you going to do for, for oh, money? You, you go to the National Museum on Edinburgh Castle for the military. Fascinating museum. And mm. the propaganda is so powerful. Mm. Talking all of these Scottish kids into fighting for the queen and Absolutely. going to foreign lands for the glory of God and country. It's very and ironic. It cause and there's even signing bonuses, just like we have today in our country. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's very ironic because their fathers and grandfathers fought against that yeah. system. Yeah, exactly. Is it and then the romanticism of Scotland, everyone wearing the kilt, and it had been banned. It was ethnic cleansing. But the 19th century, Queen Victoria, Walter Scott, everybody wearing the kilt, the making it fashionable. Watch. Part yeah. of it, you know, Queen Victoria ruled for, what, 70 years or something? Um, 37 to 1901, 1837 to 1901. Okay, 64 years something she like ruled. That. And she was infatuated with the wild, kilted Scotsman, I think. I think she must have had wonderful dreams about them or something. Yes, I mean, that was Scotland. her thing, wasn't it? Now the English uh, royal family still holidays up in Balmoral. Absolutely. The royal family loves Scotland. But that was going on throughout Europe, wasn't it? That's Richard Wagner. Okay, that's the, the romantic, romantic era. Ro- I guess that makes sense, the underdog, Mendelssohn. the ethnic underdog. Well, it, it's also the industrialization yes. and the urbanization. What happens is people look for their rural roots that they never had. It's a natural consequence yeah. of that. Now, the Welsh... I mean, when I think of you guys fighting, I think you guys fighting in lifeboats against storms to rescue people out on boats. Oh, come on. Everybody's seen the Pretty film starving. Zulu, haven't they? Where the South Wales borderers hold out against all those Zulus. They're oh, talking about propaganda as oh, well. Oh, there you go. Yeah. But you got this thing about uh, lifeboats. Have we? You do. Everywhere I go, there's a charity for the lifeboats. Oh, yeah, because Britain's an island. And we've yeah. got a particularly rocky coast, as has Scotland. Now, the lifeboats in Britain, I don't know about America, but it's run entirely voluntarily. Right. It's public subscription. And it's the one charity that you, you go into the pub, the hardest, worst drinker, the meanest man, he'll put money in for the lifeboats. He never knows when he's going to need it. Is know? that right? Oh, yeah. So in our, in our country, the firemen have a... We're, we're really thankful for the firemen to help Absolutely. us out and so on. In uh, Wales, I feel like the lifeboat volunteers are, are kind of in that same category. Within the town, if you're in the lifeboat crew, you're a respected person. You're giving your time, risking your life for the well-being of others, which is a very wonderful thing to do. It sure is. We've got lots of callers on the line. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with Martin Delandovitz and Anne Doig, and we're talking about Wales and Scotland as it relates to the British Empire. And we have Catherine on the line in Wilmington, Delaware. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Rick. How are you? Good. Thanks for your call. Do you have a question or a comment for Martin or Anne? I would like to ask out of curiosity what each of your guests, uh, what their favorite aspect of the opposite country is. Oh, very nice. This is like having a, a political candidate make a compliment to the other one. Okay. Well, the opposite. Well, my favorite thing about Wales, mm. Port Merion. Really? <laughs> the villages, the beaches, the landscape. Port Merion is Italian, isn't it? It's no, Italianate. It's Clough Williams Alley. So built. it's like a folly. It's a big Italian... Uh, it's a village built between the two world wars. Italianate, they say. But, so uh, Anne is complimenting Wales for something that's the only thing Italian in Wales. That's not a very good compliment. <laughs> Martin, your turn. Well, if Anne mentioned it, I'm going to say it now. I admire deeply Scottish education. Scottish education is the highest standard in Britain. Their universities and their uh, academies, their schools are phenomenal. Of course, they produce such wonderful people as uh, Tony Blair (laughs) and, of course, our current Prime Minister, Gordon Brown. What an estimable educational system. (laughs) (laughs) So they're both educated in Scotland? Yes, Tony Blair, good Edinburgh man. Tony Blair was made in Edinburgh. (laughs) Made in Edinburgh. (laughs) He was born there, educated there. All right. (laughs) Thanks for your uh, comment, Catherine, or your question. It's true that, by the way, I admire oh, Scottish education you. hugely. I've learned a lot about Scottish education when oh, I'm up there. Phenomenal. It's just really impressive, and mm. people don't realize that. But it does go back to the Reformation and a lot of things. There. Mm. There's yeah. historical yeah. roots to that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of Scots and Welsh emigration uh, outside of, of your zones. I mean, the, any poor region has more people leaving it than others. Mm. And if you look at who came to America, it was the people who had the, the toughest times. Where's the, uh, where did the immigrants go from Scotland and, and Wales? In Wales in particular, the, um, the Quakers around Bala. 
This is at the time when, you know, William Orange, we talked about the Battle of the Boyne, came in and everybody in Britain had to swear an oath of fealty to the king. Well, Quakers don't swear oaths. Ah, and so, so the Welsh Quakers picked up sticks and were promised a Welsh tract by William Penn. But now... Pennsylvania was mostly Welsh Quakers? No, they did. They, it was other people too. Mm -hmm. But a man called William Humphreys left his house in Bala, came along uh, to Wales and built a replica of his farmhouse in uh, Pennsylvania. And his farmhouse was called Bryn Mawr. So that's why you get place Bryn Mawr, that great oh, okay. ladies' college. college. And so that's straight from Wales. Okay. Oh, yeah. And a lot of uh, the names, you know, Balakunwid and uh, all the rest of it, very Welsh. Scottish immigration? Um, the Carolinas originally, North Carolina, Nova Scotia, um, Australia, South America, and it's still happening. My sister lives in the States, and I lived abroad for a while, too. And now with the hot economies in Britain, I find when I went to Cardiff with my TV show, I wanted to shoot some Welsh people, it's and it was hard to find Welsh people. I mean, there was immigrants new there, the new Welsh people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you yeah, have a lot Eastern of immigrants. Euro Eastern Europeans. But yeah. I don't know about Wales, but in Scotland, we've got a lot of Eastern Europeans. Yeah, in Cardiff, you get them. Cardiff, isn't Cardiff a beautiful city, Rick? <laughs> Don't you find the civic buildings gorgeous? I have a tough time in Cardiff, to be honest now why, with you. Why is that, Rick? I don't know. I just Why is it? Why do I have a tough time in Cardiff? It's a uh, historic city. Next, but time, next time you come, you go with me. We'll have okay. a great time. fun ways for you to participate on Travel with Rick Steves is by being creative. Write us a haiku poem about your travels. Tell us in a few well-chosen words about the sights, smells, and people you've encountered, and we'll read a few of our favorites on a future edition of Travel with Rick Steves. Here's some recent haiku we especially liked. Annette Showday of Grable, Wyoming, listens to us on Yellowstone Public Radio. She sends us a couple of haiku about a visit to Ireland in the winter. Land of darkness, of little sun and much rain, and such small light bulbs. Land of narrow roads, white sheeped hillsides, ancient stones, and gigantic spoons. And for a bonus, she included this poem she calls Wherever You Go. You can travel the world in a gulf stream, ride a rickshaw through Tokyo Town. You can raft through the Grand Grand Canyon, or climb up Mount Everest and down. You can travel the world in an airplane, or a train, or a boat, or a car. Just remember, wherever you happen to go, in the end, that's just where you are. Send us your original haiku or a short brag about your hometown. Details are in the radio section at ricksteves.com, and our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. We'll look next at some of the touristic clichés that you can find in Scotland and Wales, and ways to skip over those cheesy stereotypes and delve deeper to find the genuine Celtic culture that hides out in those back roads of Britain. 877-333-7425, that's our phone number. Radio at ricksteves.com is our email address. It's Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by my friends and fellow tour guides, Anne Doig from Edinburgh and Martin Delandovitz from the north of Wales. Carnarvon is your home, right, Martin? Yep. Carnarvon with a great castle. Beautiful castle. The most <laughs> expensive castle ever built by a king of England. Before we get into fine castles, and it is true, that castle has a sort of a stylish touch, doesn't it? Oh, it, it does. The it's nice inlaid stonework. Uh, but what about the tacky cultural cliches? I, I find them, frankly kind of obnoxious. Uh, when I go to Scotland, it's like Loch Ness Monsterville. There's the original Loch Ness Monster Center and the uh, official Loch Ness Monster Center, and they each have more square footage devoted to their shops than to the actual museum site. Um, yeah. What's your take on that, Anne? Because you, you well, are I, Scottish. I, uh, yes, I am Scottish, and I yes, the, the the monsters given birth to a million tacky tourist items. It's I I can't stand those tacky tourist items, but but it pays the bills. 
Exactly. Because, you know, Norway's invented a monster too. Is that <laughs> right? On the Iron monster goes back to the time of St. Columba, though. That's true. It's a historic cultural it's a historic, cliche. Yeah. There's been 10,000 sightings, the mystery of the loch. The historic hoax. But in fact, I don't think it's the most beautiful loch. And, you what, know, it, what is the most beautiful loch, would you say? Loch Marie, in my opinion, which is further north. How do you spell that? M-A-R-E-E, which, yeah. in my opinion, in Wester Ross is the most beautiful loch. Martin, what's the most obnoxious tourist trap in Wales, as far as you're concerned? Oh, guys, you know, there are lots of contenders here, Rick. Um, I couldn't answer that if anybody from the Wales Tourist Board were listening. Then. Nobody from the Wales Tourist Board Nobody is Nobody from the Tourist Board is listening, and then I would go for Hrill. Really, why? Because it expresses possibly the worst of what I... I mean, this is purely my opinion. Right. I do apologise to anybody listening from Hill <laughs> or indeed from the Wales Tourist Board. It's, it's sort of Coney Island uh, uh, without the warmth, you know? You know, I went to... Clandidno? Yes. No, what is the the resort town just past Clandidno, Con- yeah. Conway? Yeah, Clandidno. It's really nice. It's a glorious uh, Victorian resort, and right? That's Turn the of the point. century kind of. Uh, and it's elegant. There's an old world elegance when people really thought they could walk out on a pier and mm. get the sea air. That's, that's, I mean, Clandidno is in effect thrill without Coney Island. And isn't it nice? Seaside resorts do not have to be awful. Oh, we've got places like towns with 57 names in them. We Tell have. me the name. There's that one, and I, that's one of my pet peeves. I, everybody wants to go to this town, and it just has a and long what, name. And what does it have? Yeah, it has a long name. So you go to the train station, and you read on the front of the train station. What do you read? Wonderful. That's the name of the town? Yep, that's what, the name what of is the town. It? it must be a, a whole bunch of words put It's together. a whole bunch of words. It's, you know, uh, do you know what it means? The Church of St. Mary, Rapid, Whirlpool, Hollow, Hazel, blah, blah. It, it's a 19th century fiction. I'm going to tell you this now. Yeah. Uh, it's very much like Welsh national costume was invented in the 1860s and 70s. A lot of our traditions. We talked about the romantic period when people looked for roots that never existed. And a lot of our cultural traditions were then invented. All over Europe. Tourists should know. Half of the sightseeing they see is an invention from the Romantic Age. Mm-hmm. A lot of the towns all over Europe that are so charming and higgly-piggly and so on were uh, fanciful rebuilds over the top based on some kind of medieval reality, but, yeah. but done yeah. over the top in the 19th century. And, and what annoys Victorian me... Victorian Gothic. Yeah, yeah what, what annoys me about these is that out there, there is a far better truth. The reality of Scotland or Wales is far better than the Loch Ness Monster, isn't it? Oh, of course. Oh, yes. and, and, you know, it, it takes a bit more finding because the Loch Ness Monster is so available. But if you From actually... Go, yeah, yes. if you go and look for the real history, the real past of Scotland or Wales, it is far more interesting. It's, it lasts better. But there's a symptom. I think a lot of the tourist industry would find it more convenient if travelers were just dumbed down and they do this stuff. It's, you make more money, it's right there, it's simple, it's a slam dunk. You got your Loch Ness Monster toy, let's go on to the next tourist cliche. And they're missing some real exciting learning that they could have in their travels. Cindy's on the line from Warren, Michigan. Hi, Cindy, thanks for your call. Oh, thank you, Rick. Hi, how are you? We're doing good. Good. I was wondering, on Wales, is there any type of agritourism there? Agro-tourism. Well, we have the bed and breakfast. And by agro-tourism, I, I think you maybe mean staying at farmhouses. Yes, there's quite a lot of is it. Is that what you mean, Cindy? Yes, I do. Like Italy, I think, is very popular That's for right, agro-tourism. agro-tourism. And it's the same thing. What has happened is that I've said already uh, that uh, Wales, like Scotland, has thin acid soil and small sheep. In other words, the land is not too productive. Farmers try to diversify, and one of the things they do is they have uh, tourists, visitors to Wales, stay at their places. And Welsh farmhouses, there are many Welsh farmhouses that you can stay at, and it's a lovely experience. And Welsh sheepdog uh, demonstrations on farms. Yeah, indeed. I mean, I the same that. in Scotland, yeah. Same in Scotland. Uh, border collies are the, the traditionally used dog, and it's wonderful to see. I mean, farming in Wales is tough, as it is in Scotland. It's hard. It's not a great climate. Does the government subsidize that to save small farms, or is it just um, tough luck? No, no they're still stuff. good, not as good as they used to be. Again, this we were talking about the European Union. There are subsidies to be had from the European Union that make it bearable, but believe me, okay. it is a true vocation. But London does recognize the value of keeping the small farms alive as part of the heritage, and they do oh, get yes. a few breaks. Oh, yes. But a lot of small farmers are doing touristic things, like our friend who has the dog demonstration That's in great. Northern mm. Wales. Yeah, yeah, true. And he probably makes as much money uh, showing tourists his dog responding to his whistles as he does cutting the hair off his sheep. I mean, the farmers are now really becoming custodians of the landscape. They don't make money out of their farming efforts. But, you know, it is. We we sort of mock it. But tourism is of great value to areas like Wales and Scotland, countries like Wales and Scotland. Absolutely. Because because our climates and our soils do not produce much. Cindy, you've travelled in Wales before? 
Yes, we just went um, across the bridge and went to Tintern Abbey and I believe oh. a castle there. Yeah, Chepstow Castle. It was just beautiful, yeah. but I wanted to explore it a little bit more, and I was thinking agritourism would be the way to go. What a good idea. You've yeah. really got a good idea there, Sydney. Yeah. And you cut over from Bath then or some, some places, yes. right? Yeah, yes. so many right people off. go to Bath in the Cotswold Villages, and I think you're really smart, Cindy, to just take that quick freeway over the huge bridge. Oh, and it then, was wonderful, and, and then it was so quick, like you said. Tintern Abbey. Is oh. is just beautiful, and then you've got uh, Carefully Castle there, which is quite dramatic. Chepstow Castle, yes. very nice, and yes, just that's just what it was. Uh, uh-huh. avoid the big city just down the road. Um, Cardiff, Cardiff, a lovely city, <laughs> wonderful. There is I a, quite enjoyed it. There is, I'm glad you did, Cindy. There is a great site just beyond Cardiff at St. Fagans. St. Fagans, the folk museum, the open air folk museum, and here where you get traditional culture on a lazy Susan. Yeah. Oh, okay. Now they do have like long boats, like England does. No, what it is is they brought buildings representative of the architectural heritage of all of Wales to the one site near the capital city, Cardiff. And it's, it's a Swedish model originally, the folk mm-hmm. village. You see one in Holland too, don't you? All, all over Europe now you have yeah. these open-air folk museums. But here's an example, Cindy. You would go, they've got a long strip of row houses, two up and That's two right, downs, whatever yeah. they call it. And each one, you've got eight houses in a row, each okay. one would be dolled up and furnished as it was in a different generation going back 150 years. So you walk right down this little strip yeah. of, of uh, apartments and you go into the living rooms from 1840, 1880, 1920, yeah. 1960. Uh, it's really quite oh, fascinating. Oh, it's yeah. beautiful. beautiful. And, and that would be an open-air folk museum. You've got them all over Britain. Britain is really into that sort of thing. Oh, okay. Cindy, thanks for your call. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> what, about, what about alcohol? In Scotland, of course, we've got the whiskey. Yes. How is Scottish and Irish whiskey different? Uh, Irish is distilled three times, I think. Scottish and Scottish? Twice. And it's spelled different too, right? Yeah, there's an E in the Irish one. Ours is the best, of course, but they'll have a discussion. They'll if, dis- disagree with of that. Of course, the Irish will. If you're going for <coughs> Scottish whiskey as a tourist, how will you get the fun whiskey experience? What do you advise? Going to distillery. Go to a distillery, and, and you and tour you the distillery, and you get a the tasting. Distillery, you get a tasting, They yeah. actually have tasting tests at the end, which is fun. That's right, yeah. And if you want to go to a pub, many people go to a pub for a beer, but boy, those pubs are into their whiskeys too. Oh, yeah. Some of the pubs have got a huge amount of selection of whiskies. How, how many different whiskies do you know the, the figure offhand? There's over 300. No, right. So different try, single malts. Now, at the top, in, everybody goes to Edinburgh. At the top of the Royal Mile, you got what we call Malt Disney. It's just this goofy the whiskey, ride. The whiskey, the whiskey Heritage Centre, yeah. yeah. At the bottom, there's a place called Cadenheads. Cadenheads. That's excellent. That's Why do you like Cadenheads? Because it's, it's a real thing. It's a guy who, who pulls who it out of the it. keg, and he really yeah. knows his stuff, and he'll mm. bottle you something. And he told me that all these uh, guys whose names are on the, on the labels of the whiskey bottles, the, the big barons of whiskey, they prefer the un, uh, dis, unpurified, unpurified. Un, filtered, down. unfiltered. Yeah. And it's this yeah. whiskey in the rough. rough. Yeah. And you get it there at Cadenheads. Yeah, they don't because some whiskies they actually add caramel to keep the color consistent. Yeah, it's, it's, so, a, it's a horrible thing what they do for the mass production of the whiskies. And you can join temporarily the, the Malt Whiskey Society in Queen Street in Leith, uh-huh. and you can buy from them, and it's from a cask. Now in Wales, all they have is mead. No, we got beer too. We're actually very fond of beer. I want to point out that Southwest Scotland by Glasgow has the highest incidence of crime and disease related to alcohol, but in Britain, Wales is proudly number two. In what? In, 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 in alcohol-related alcohol so you do have an alcohol problem. In no, no problem. We can buy it fairly cheap. It's not, it's, it's not a huge problem. <laughs> okay, so if, you're, if, you're, if you have a problem with violence, I mean, it's just I know, it, it is. It's a sad thing, yeah. So, but mead is a medieval honey wine, right? Mead, and yes, in the poems of a Neirin of the mid-6th century, meth, the Welsh word for mead, was being distilled and drunk back then and remembered in poetry. Mead is still uh, distilled and drunk. I love the Welsh language. What language do they speak up in heaven? Uh, well, it is said that Welsh is the language of heaven, but uh, I doubt that seriously. You doubt that That's seriously? That's funny, because they said that the, the words that were spoken in the Garden evening, Eden was Gaelic. Yeah. <laughs> isn't that strange, isn't it? <laughs> what was Shakespeare's first language? It was English, but a different English to the Anglo-Saxon, one we know. Anglo-Saxon, yeah. he, 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 Apparently there are six autographs that survive of Shakespeare's, and each time it's spelt differently. And these are autographs. So anybody listening who cannot spell or has difficulty spelling, don't worry about it. Shakespeare couldn't do it either, even with his own name. <laughs> That's brilliant. We're talking with Martin and Anne about Wales and Scotland. you got bagpipes in both of your countries, don't you? Yes. No, not, not really. No. Not, not bagpipes in no. Wales? It died out, maybe, because they say there was a tradition of bagpipes in every we, European country. Well, I country. guess in, in Wales it's, it's harps. Well, no, we had something called the pipcorn, which was, uh, it's like a, a cross between a recorder and a clarinet that sounds like a, a bee in, uh, in, in, in the final throes of its uh, a, a, a dying bee, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in Wales, when you think about music, it's 
male choirs. It's oh, male it's choirs. choirs. Not yeah. female choirs. Yeah, oh. you do get female choirs. The male choirs are there. The female choirs are a later thing because you see that's again essentially 19th century. That's uh, sort of, I mean, the male choirs is where it's, they, it has the roots in the coal mines. In the, coal in the mine. coal mines and in the factories, but it's only in the 19th century when you really start coal mining or in factories that choirs will then develop. Men will come together. So for the last 150 years or something, you, years, you've yes. had men. And how does that why do choirs have anything to do with coal mining? Well, because people would work together, they would sing together, and then they would establish competitions between the different sections of the pit or between different pits, between different chapels, between different villages. And uh, people would practice at lunchtime. The Eistedd Voda, you know, the festivals mm. of poetry and culture, grew out of that chapel industrial culture, really. All right, they'd existed since the 1200s. For a tourist, Martin, visiting Wales today who's interested in hearing some good um, male choirs, what mm. would you advise? I would advise the, the two things you do is usually it's Tuesday, Wednesday. You'll find that all choirs and there's a choir. If you're in Wales, there's a choir near you and they practice on <laughs> Tuesday and Wednesday nights. And that's really good to go to. And it doesn't cost you make a contribution. And of course, you can go down to the pub afterwards with the choristers and those tired throats do need lubrication. But I tell you this, if you go down the pub with the choir, off come the collars and ties and their singing is fantastic. This is a great tip. So Tuesday and Wednesday, choirs practice Usually, yeah. in almost every town. They've yep. got a choir, and it's a social thing. Every week they get together, oh, yeah. and they'll, they'll practice, I suppose, at the church? No, it can be the church. It's usually some hall somewhere in town. A hall. And then, as part of the whole social thing, they go down to the pub together. Afterwards, naturally. yeah, and the singing, oh. And then the singing really gets going. Yeah. And then a tourist would be welcome there? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a beautiful thing. A beautiful thing. Uh, we've got some more people on the line. We've got Nadine on the line in Chehalis, Washington. Hi, Nadine. Hi, Rick. I'm a weaver and a musician, and I'm drawn to go to Scotland most every year. But if I want to expand my travels to Wales, I'm wondering if Martin could tell me what clubs I could go to to play some music with some locals and see venues related to textiles. Hmm. Right. Now, you can combine both of those in the fair town of Conwy in North Wales. One of our last callers was staying up there looking at the castle. Um, what you do is that... Uh, now, you're going to have to forgive me. I've forgotten the name of the pub. What instrument do you play there, Nadine? The fiddle. Well, you have that pub in Conway. Every Monday night is a folk evening, and you'd be most welcome. And just up the valley, I would say, if you were to drive 10 minutes, there is a, a woolen mill. And it's not like one of these shops where they sell you bits of wool. They actually manufacture. They mill wool there. So you can combine the two. Only traveling 10 minutes. The ah, woolen mill. What's the name of the mill? Um, it is the um, Trevriu, T-R-E-F. R-I-W. The other one you could look at, now that's a, that would take you an hour to get there, is, I'll spell it to you rather than, it's Brinkir, but uh, B-R-Y-N-K-I-R. They have machinery so old that if you go to the Museum of the Welsh Woolen Industry, you see the same machinery as a museum piece that they're actually using there. Nadine, thanks for your call. Excellent, thanks. Martin and Anne, I've got a, just a short time left. I'd like to get your comments on this in just a couple of sentences each. Uh, there's a famous line that defines each of your regions, Offa's Dyke in Wales and Hadrian's Wall in Scotland. Offa's Dyke, Martin. Offa's Dyke. Offa was uh, an English king. And what he, you see, the word Wales means, well, Walia, foreigner. And Wales didn't exist as a word in Wales. The, the, to the Anglo-Saxons, to the English who came in after the Roman conquest, they're just the strangers. And... Do you know, Wales has never had anything, so they come over into Mercia and they'd rob mercilessly. And this king officer said, to heck with this. And so he organized all the people along the border of Wales. They dug a big ditch, threw the product of the ditch into a, a bank. This bank and ditch then defined geographically Wales for the first time. This is in the 800s. And you can hike it today. You can hike it. Bits of it survive quite well, bits not. Hadrian's Wall. Hadrian's Wall was built by the Emperor Hadrian in about AD 140 to mark the end of the, the British Empire. North of that were the barbarians. That was my ancestors. <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the Romans decided, ah, let's not mess with them. They no, look like more trouble than they're worse. <laughs> High mountains. Uh, well, Britain doesn't have uh, towering mountains, but you've got mountains you're proud of. In Wales, you've got Mount Snowdon. In Scotland, you've got Ben, ben Nevis. Nevis. Tell me about Ben Nevis. 4,406 feet um, means the, the Ben or the Hill of Heaven. It's near Fort William, and everyone wants to climb it and scatter their ancestors tallest on it. Tallest point in all of the British Isles? The tallest point in all of the British Isles, yeah. Wow. And Mount Snowdon? Snowdon, 3,654 feet high. <laughs> it's uh, oh, 500 feet less, but it's beautiful. Uh, it really is. Snowdon, Ia, the, the range of hills around it, really lovely. 
dropping into the sea, therefore having the feeling of being much higher than they really are. Yeah, Ben Nevis drops into the sea as well, which is good. We've got a beautiful comment from Mimi, who emailed us from Cincinnati. Mimi writes, Scotland is amazing, especially Culloden and the Great Glen, and Wales is mystical, magical, and I get an amazing feeling of belonging there, even if I'm not Welsh. Thoughts on that? That's a lovely thing to say, Mm. isn't it? And, and that's the thing. You know, our listeners will, of course, want to go to Scotland. I don't blame them. They'll want to go to Wales. And what has said, been said by Mimi tells you that a welcome awaits you in both those places. That's a very sweet sentiment. I think there's also a fun little playful jabbing among the family of ethnic groups that share those British islands. Anne, is there any sort of well, there is a wisdom that you can tell me? There's a little poem. illustrates our humour, I, I guess. But the, it starts with, first you have the Welsh who prey on their knees and on their neighbours. Then you have the Irish, who don't know what they want, but they'll fight you for it anyway. Then you have the Scots, who keep the Sabbath and everything else they can get their hands on. And then you have the English, who are a self-made race, which absolves Almighty God of a great deal of responsibility. <laughs> wow, that's a, that's a thought-provoking mouthful. And, and uh, words to ponder as we close this hour. <laughs> Anne and Martin from Scotland and Wales, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Rick. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Our website has more information about this and other programs in the series, including archived audio and podcast extras. There's also links to share your thoughts on this program with other listeners, to send your email questions for Rick, and to submit an original poem for our 15 Seconds of Fame department. It's all on the radio section at ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.